Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Our immune system. It's an essential part of protecting the body from bacteria, viruses, and more. But what happens when the immune system turns on itself? Autoimmune disorders are conditions where the body is not able to recognize the difference between friend or foe and starts to attack. Lupus and rheumatoid arthritis are two conditions that result from the immune system overload. What can be done to treat these problems and how does that relate to the rest of the body? Well, we have rheumatologist Dr. Tracy Carano is in the studio. She's an expert at the diagnosis and treatment of these and other autoimmune conditions. If you or a loved one has an autoimmune disorder, this is the time to hear about what you might be able to do to help. You can join us throughout the show, as always, at 941-3689, toll-free from our friends on the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Carano, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you for having me. Now, a lot of times people feel like rheumatology or rheumatic conditions like lupus or, or rheumatoid arthritis are mystery illnesses. I mean, even as a physician myself, these are really difficult to diagnose conditions that often require a specialist because it seems like things change every day, every year. There's always some new test that, you know, you've never heard of that is new and advanced. And luckily, a lot of the treatments have been discovered in the recent past, and they've really revolutionized the care for some of these illnesses. You know, talking about the immune system, it's so great when it works. And when it doesn't, and it starts to attack the body itself, we get these conditions. What exactly is lupus? Is there a way to just define it in a simple fashion that everybody could understand? Because it seems like it's it's a very complicated kind of situation. So lupus is a very complicated disease because everyone can look a little different. Not everyone's lupus is going to look the same. And that's why it's often difficult, even sometimes for a rheumatologist to make the diagnosis. Well, now I feel better because if, <laughs> if you have a hard time, I feel like I get an easy pass. Sometimes I have a hard time too. Okay. So what sort of symptoms would someone present to either to yourself or maybe even to myself that would suggest that this is a consideration? Sure. The first uh, aspect, the most important aspect is the person itself before we even look at any blood test. Um, so some symptoms of lupus can be very vague. Um, some people will describe fatigue and fatigue could be from an enormous amount of different conditions. Um, but if someone is having rashes, skin rashes, there's a particular rash on the cheeks. Sometimes we call it a butterfly rash or a malar rash. Um, it's usually raised a little bit scaly and it can often be precipitated by the sun or sun exposure. That's one of the more obvious sort of symptoms that someone can have. But the rash can really be anywhere on the body, uh, particularly in sun exposed areas. So in Hawaii, you know, the the v-neck, the chest, the shoulders and the arms, because we are often wearing very uh, exposed clothing here in Hawaii. Um, another common symptom is joint pain. It can feel like stiffness in joints, particularly the small joints of the fingers and the wrist. Sometimes there's actually swelling of the joints. So if someone were to look at their hand, um, it would look very puffy and swollen and they wouldn't be able to see their skin creases anymore. Um, some of the other symptoms that someone can have involve more internal organs. So it may not be quite as obvious that it's lupus. So things like chest pain, which again could be from so many different things, but should be evaluated nonetheless, especially breathing problems, feeling short of breath or a sharp pain in the chest when someone's breathing. 
a lot of the other um, findings are usually blood work. And so sometimes that's what's found by the doctor. Uh, low blood cell counts like anemia or low white blood cell counts can be uh, a signal that there's something going on with the immune system. And the big one is the kidneys. That's a big organ um, system that's often involved with lupus. And it's one of the big ones we want to treat very quickly. So what does lupus do to kidneys? So it basically what the immune system has identified the kidney as being something foreign. And so your body is mounting an attack against the kidneys. Um, so sometimes the first evidence of it will be the urine. The urine can have blood in it. Um, sometimes that'll look like a little pink tinge, or sometimes the urine will start looking a little um, in more severe forms, like a brownish color, almost like iced tea or Coca-Cola. Okay, I don't want to drink those right now. Thank you. <laughs> um, at other times, there'll be protein in the urine. When there's a lot of protein in the urine, what you'll see is the urine looks a little bubbly, a little frothy. Um, otherwise, it's found in a blood, uh, not a blood test, I'm sorry, a urine test will show the protein level more than what we would expect. And that would be another sign that we need to look a little further at the kidneys. So let's talk about some of these early symptoms. You mentioned having a rash in the face. And, you know, for a lot of people who go out in the sun, they get red anyway. So mm -hmm. how could they distinguish the type of rash to get concerned about versus the type of rash to just not worry about? Right. And so the lupus rash, that's the malar rash, it's usually a little bit raised. There's going to be a texture to it. And it often spares the part of your face called the nasal labial fold. It's that crease that goes from the edge of your nose down to the side of your lips. Um, so that's usually very spared. So the whole cheek can look red, but that one crease will look completely normal. And sometimes this rash can look like something called rosacea, and it can fool a dermatologist, and it can fool even a rheumatologist. Uh, it usually requires a lot of sun exposure, and it's something that usually takes a long time to go away. So someone notices some pinkness on their cheeks, but it resolves once they go in the shade. That's not what we're talking about. This malar rash can last weeks, um, sometimes even longer than that. Does it eventually go away? It can eventually go away for some individuals, and some, if their disease is still active in their body, the rash was going to persist as long as uh, the inflammation is still present. So do you need a biopsy to prove it? Sometimes we do. Um, sometimes when the rash doesn't look quite right and there's a suspicion for lupus, then the biopsy of the skin is going to be very helpful, and then we'll need our dermatology friends to help us out with that. Sure, because it's on the face, so yes. you don't want to take a big piece of anything. You don't want to leave a big scar, but it's important to know the information. Now, if you don't have the rash, but you have some of the, you mentioned joint findings, so mm -hmm. people could have swelling of their joints. They could also notice that they're extremely tired. And a lot of these symptoms might happen to people as they get older anyway. Mm -hmm. What sort of age group is the most, and what gender are the most common people who tend to get something like lupus? So lupus tends to be a female predominant disease. Uh, I think the ratio is nine women to every one man is more likely to have lupus. Um, that's separate from children. In children, the ratio is closer to equal, maybe three girls to two boys. Um, so that's why there's some thought that maybe estrogen, uh, thought of as a female hormone, it has something to do with lupus. It tends to be in women of childbearing age, so adolescent to early 20s, maybe even in the 30s. And then if we see it in older age, usually it's in the 50s or 60s that we'll see it again, but more often in young women of childbearing age. So you'll have some of these symptoms, you'll go see your doctor, and Blood testing is also something important. Yes. And there's some unique features of some of the blood tests. Yes. 
There's a particular antibody called the anti-nuclear antibody or the ANA test. Um, some people call it a lupus screening test, which I think is a very poor name for it. I don't think it's a lupus screening test at all. Um, but it is one of the antibodies that we find in lupus. And I would say if the ANA is negative, I would highly doubt a diagnosis of lupus, though it is still possible in very rare conditions. I would say over 95% of the people with lupus should have this particular antibody. That would be one of the first signals that your body's immune system is making antibodies that it shouldn't be. Now, if you have a negative test and then you still have symptoms and like a couple of years later, could it turn positive? It could. Or it once could. it's positive, it always is? Once it's positive, it usually stays positive. And once it's negative, you could still have Be- it later. Exactly, exactly. But the um, it usually is the antibody changes first. Um, and so some people, if we happen to test their blood for one reason or another, and we see an ANA, but they don't have any symptoms, I would say you have an ANA, but I don't see anything yet. Um, but there is the a situation where months, maybe years down the road, that other symptoms start accumulating and that ANA all of a sudden now becomes a little more significant. Are there ways to test after the ANA, the original test? So this is a test that, you know, I see people and they we do this test all the time. And I got to say, most of the time it's negative and we don't find anything to worry about. And there are a couple of times when it's positive And that could have a variety of different reasons. Mm -hmm. So we often check another test after that. And that test, I'm hoping, is a little bit more specific. And that's the anti-double-stranded DNA test. Yes. So there's actually a slew of antibodies out there um, and for various organ systems, various diseases. There's too many. There's too many. (laughs) There's too many. I don't know them all. I'm glad you're here because you know them. And So, so. Is that a test that is a good test to do? Yes. So once an ANA is positive, that suggests that there's something going on with the immune system. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a disease, but there's something that's making proteins up that here. it sh- shouldn't. We don't know what. Yes. Okay. There are a variety of, of other antibodies that we check in the world of rheumatology, and some pertain to lupus, some pertain to other diseases, one of which, as you mentioned, is the double-stranded DNA. Um, when positive, it tends to correlate with kidney disease. So if someone were to have a positive double-stranded DNA, it would make us very concerned about the status of their kidneys and whether or not their kidneys are going to be involved at some point in time. And so so that particular antibody test is very specific for the kidneys. There's a couple other tests that we check. One is called SMITH. Um, SMITH is also very specific for lupus. So if that's positive, that really goes with the lupus diagnosis. So if you get that one test that's positive, don't freak out. You might be doing some confirmatory tests. You mentioned the Smith antigen or the anti-Smith and then also the double-stranded DNA. And so there are some other tests that might need to be done. Mm -hmm. What if, and sometimes people will have an ANA, this anti-nuclear antigen, be positive. No other symptoms, no other problems. Mm -hmm. How often do you recheck it? I mean, is it something that you should probably, if there's no symptoms, check again with symptoms or like, check once a year or is there an interval is there any answer or is this just the magic of rheumatology (laughs) that that makes me admire you guys so much um so the anti-nuclear antibody they've done a lot of research on this and when they pooled a population whether or not whether they had disease or not about 20 percent of the population can have an ana and it not really mean anything so we could possibly be stressing people out unnecessarily with this test um but if it 
is positive and there's no evidence of disease, I would do my best to reassure the individual person that I'm not saying anything today, but yes, the antibody is positive. I would not recommend rechecking it unless there are symptoms that are developing or something has changed in the individual person that's making someone wonder about whether or not this is lupus. But if that's the case, then I would say I wouldn't even worry about checking the ANA again because once it's positive, it's essentially going to be positive. I would start moving forward with some of the other antibodies if I felt that they're sort of the way they looked fit like lupus, I would just move forward with checking some of the other antibodies. So you could have this whole picture that says, no, no, they're the one out of five that probably just has the positive test with no other associated problem. Or they could be the four out of five who might have something, maybe not now, but watchful waiting, keep an eye on it, check the rest of the picture. You mentioned sometimes your just standard blood count can give you hints and some other things like urine testing can give you hints. So there's there's a method to the magic. Yes. Okay. And so there are things that you would do. Now, you know, lupus is one of those things that the long-term effects, which I think bear discussion, you don't want to have. So, you know, you don't want to have the serious kidney problem, serious lung problem, serious joint problems. Is lupus one of those conditions, and we'll talk about rheumatoid arthritis in a little bit, but is lupus one of those conditions where early treatment is better, or should you wait with treatment until you hit a certain point because early treatment leads to resistance later? Right. So with lupus, if I met someone for the first time and I I would say based on your history, based on the way you look, based on your lab work, I'm really very strongly saying that this is this is what we're dealing with at this point in time. I would strongly recommend starting treatment that day um, because what you want to do is calm down the immune system because the immune system is what's getting this individual person into problems by attacking their body unnecessarily. And so if we can start the medication, we can sort of halt um, as best we can the process because if we do nothing, we know that this deg- disease is one of potential progression. So while you may not have organ involvement at this point in time, down the road, you may have kidney involvement, lung involvement, heart involvement, brain involvement, you name the organ, lupus can affect it. And so if we can start medicine this day to help prevent progression, prevent involvement, that would be the better outcome for the individual person. So if they have enough symptoms, it's time to just stop this. (laughs) And maybe not take, would somebody, once they start medicine for lupus, have to take it from that point onwards? Or could they take it, everything calms down, be off medicine for a while, it acts up again, they take it again? I know there's probably variations in thought based on the rheumatologist you you speak to. In my opinion, there's one particular medication called hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil um, that if that I would like to start on a person that I think has lupus. And the intention is as long as there's no toxicity, there's no allergic reaction or or intolerance, that they're going to be on this medication for the rest of their life. Um, It's sort of like what we call insurance. It's in your insurance policy to prevent progression of disease because studies have shown when that medication stopped, you're more likely to have a flare of your lupus. And that flare could be very mild to very serious. So it's serious enough that if you get diagnosed with lupus and it's a problem, start treating it. Don't sit around and wait. No, but it's difficult because lupus is a very broad spectrum. Some people have very, very mild disease and do really, really well. And other people have very, very severe life-threatening, organ-threatening disease. And we are try as we will. We just are never quite catching up. And so there's a very 
big spectrum of disease. So some people will need very mild treatment, maybe just a low dose of medication. And some people will be on maximum doses of a couple or several medications to try and control the activity of the lupus. So once you have lupus, you never get rid of it, per se. We can't cure. I can't think of a disease in rheumatology that we cure. (laughs) That's what makes your job so hard. I mean, you know, like if I see somebody and they have, you know, borderline sugar and cholesterol and blood pressure, they can exercise, diet, change their lifestyle. They can probably get rid of some of those conditions, at least push them off until later. But you know, you don't have the curable ones. No, we can, we, with the medicines we have nowadays, we can get people into remission and that's where we want to keep them. But usually um, remission requires medications. In some uh, cases like rheumatoid arthritis, we can achieve what's called disease-free remission, that we get them off of all their medications and they continue to look great. But lupus uh, is not one that I would often feel comfortable taking everything away. I'd usually have them still on that Plaquenil medication if at all possible. So there are some some serious issues that need to be addressed, and it doesn't have to be steroids. I know sometimes a lot of people feel like, the only medicine that they're going to give me is steroids, and I don't want side effects. That's not necessarily the case. No, no. So prednisone is a great drug and a horrendous drug, all bundled into yeah. one. It's the only medicine we have that works fast. If we need to calm somebody down right now, that's all we have, because the medicines that we have, whether they're infused, an injection or a pill, it's going to take 8 to 12 weeks before we say that medicine's in you. And if someone's having very severe disease or they're debilitated by their symptoms, most people don't really want to wait 8 to 12 weeks or can't afford to wait that long. And so steroids, um, for example, prednisone, is all we're sort of left with uh, in our arsenal, which is sort of the unfortunate truth. Uh, But so rheumatologists, we use it a lot more than I think other specialties may use steroids, but mainly to calm down someone's inflammation when they're having it right now. Sure, because that could be a life-threatening situation. Now, we mentioned that there could be some organs that are involved, and you said there's really no organ that cannot get involved with lupus. And so what are the big areas of concern? So the biggest one would be the kidneys. And usually if the kidneys are going to be involved, there will be involved pretty early in the course. It's very rare for someone 10 years down the road to all of a sudden have kidney involvement. But irregardless, it's, I think, important to monitor it because, like I said, our diseases, you know, do what they want. They do what they will. They didn't read the textbook of what they're supposed to do. So They do what they want. <laughs> so we need to watch and make sure the kidneys do remain fine. Um, but, of course, the heart is also a very important organ uh, system. Um, cardiovascular disease can happen much earlier in people that have lupus because of the inflammatory state. So young women in their 20s or 30s are coming in to the ER with chest pain, but no one thinks of a heart attack because they're just awfully young. They're just too young to have a heart attack. But I have had patients in their 30s that had a heart attack that no one caught because no one thought it was possible. Uh, So it's very important that someone's blood pressure is under control. If they have chest pain or any sort of weird discomfort, because yes, women sometimes don't have the classic symptoms of what we would consider as chest pain related to the heart, that it really needs to be looked at sooner rather than later. All right. You're scaring me. Probably a bunch of other folks. (laughs) I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Tracy Carano, and we are talking about autoimmune disorders. We're going to be discussing rheumatoid arthritis in a few moments. We just heard a lot of scary stuff about lupus. And if you have a family member or friend who has an autoimmune disorder, there might be some things you can do to help them. You can join us at 941-3689. 
Neighbor Islands 877-941-3689. If you have either one of those conditions, we'd love to hear from you. How has it affected you and what sort of things have you discovered help you the most? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Business news. It's not all banks and budgets and bottom lines, you know. At Marketplace, we think it could be lots of things. The big trends are leather and lace. I think that the studio knows that movie was a mistake. I love twerp like no one really should. Oreos and milk. I'm Kai Rizdon. Whether you need news or the numbers or just a little chuckle, we'll have it for you next time on Marketplace from APM. Weekday evenings at 6. The ancient world became very real when Joanna Lumley visited Greece. We sailed round to see the cliff in which the great cave gaped its mouth, in which were supposedly the gates to hell down to the underworld. And St. Nicholas Day in Amsterdam can have a few awkward moments. As a dad, I have to pretend to go along with all of this because my kids love it. It's on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Tracy Carano, rheumatologist at Straub Clinic. And today we're talking about autoimmune disorders. Now, don't forget... We may talk about it, but nothing that we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider, and they can help you figure out if you're at risk for these or a whole variety of other diseases. We just talked about heart disease a little bit, and that's, Dr. Carano, you're absolutely right. That's a scary one because women often don't manifest the same symptoms as men. And we've studied a lot about men and heart disease, and we know it's a huge risk factor And I think in the last 10 years or so, the medical community has realized that whereas men may have chest pain, women may just have fatigue. And it's a scary, scary symptom. You know, and that's the other thing you just mentioned is they could have reflux. And that's, boy, who doesn't have reflux? Now, if it's after your pepperoni pizza, okay, chances are somebody had too much pizza. But, you know, if you're just having reflux for no reason, it's something to get checked out and it's pretty important. So right before the break, we were talking about lupus and how this can really be a serious disabling type of a problem. And you mentioned that, you know, there are some young people, some young women, generally women more than men, about nine to one, that have had serious negative effects from having had lupus. What are the bad consequences? I mean, what's the worst case scenario if you have lupus? You mentioned kidneys can be a problem. What else can go wrong? So we had talked about the heart. So not just heart disease in terms of a heart attack. They can have heart failure. Um, we call, the fancy word is cardiomyopathy, which can cause serious long-term effects when your heart's not pumping as a unit or not pumping enough. It can affect the lungs. The lungs can either have inflammatory fluid or it can have what's called a fibrosing-type disease where you have basically scar of the lung and so you don't have good oxygenation, so lots of shortness of breath, and that can really affect a person's quality of life when they can't breathe well. Um, When it affects the brain, it causes inflammation of the brain. It can be something that's very short-term and with treatment they get better, or it can be something where they have long-standing cognitive issues, whether it be problems with memory, problems with mood. We can have a stroke, um, which is always very devastating, and even stroke in young women 
um, because these are long-term effects that we can't really fix. These are deficits that this person's going to live with long-term. Um, it can affect the liver, causing liver failure, liver inflammation. It can affect the skin with rashes more than just the face. Can rashes everywhere? They can be uh, very uh, blistering type lesions or just more of a, a redness that's itchy and just not very cute to look at. Um, it can affect the gut, so people can have symptoms of malabsorption or lots of diarrhea, constipation, something that can look more maybe like uh, a celiac disease picture, even inflammatory bowel disease. So uh, lupus can mimic a lot of things. And the, the unfortunate part is when someone's diagnosed with lupus, any sign, symptom, complaint that they have, if a doctor looks at, at it, they said, oh, oh, this is from your lupus which in the end may be true, but I think everyone deserves a fair look. Um, what would someone do to evaluate the symptom if they didn't have lupus? And I think that should all be done for all lupus patients because we could miss something that could be easily treated. Um, and so that can sort of alleviate some of their suffering. Well, and I think the easy answer to that is I can just assume it's not their lupus because lupus could be everything <laughs> and then just check it out, you know, just to make sure. Because you're right, I would never want somebody to be in a situation where they had this advanced rheumatologic disorder and yet they didn't have cholesterol blockages checked out because, you know, those cause heart attacks probably more often than lupus causing heart attacks, you know. Heart disease is the number one cause of death in the United States, both men and women. So it's a very good point to make, which is just because you have a chronic illness doesn't mean every symptom you have is attributed to that. But if you do have lupus, you have scared anybody, including myself enough, to say, oh, my God, if I ever had lupus, I better get checked out because all of those symptoms sound scary. I mean, basically, name an organ. And then put failure after it. And those are the side effects. So if you have lupus out there, boy, I am just so impressed with your ability to handle it. And uh, and I'd love to hear from some people who do and see how they manage to, to handle that. So speaking of callers, let's go ahead and let's talk to Kevin from Pacific Heights. Kevin, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Great show. Um, doctor's question. Um, clearly, lupus has uh, many... <laughs> Uh, symptoms. I'm wondering about triggers or cause. Uh, I imagine genetics and stress play a big role, but I'm wondering if the doctor has an idea as to some things that she's seen in her patients that might uh, exacerbate or, or initiate uh, the disease state. What a great question, Kevin. I, I appreciate that because you're right. You mentioned that one thing that I think is huge, and that's stress. But there's also a lot of other triggers. And so, Dr. Carano, you know, you're shaking your head. Yes, you understand Kevin's question. And what are some of the triggers? What what brings on lupus? Is it just genetically, like just, you know, you have this, this horrible disease? Or what, what, what causes it? That is a fantastic question because there are a lot of smart researchers out there trying to figure that very thing out. We do believe that there's, there's a genetic predisposition, that there's something in your DNA, and there's really nothing you can do about that one. But the question is, why in some people does that... DNA message becomes significant and mean lupus or some other disease, and for someone else, it never means anything else. Um, there's been a lot of uh, interest and speculation in terms of infection. Uh, one infection in particular is the EBV um, Epstein virus, bar. Epstein-Barr virus, but there hasn't been a lot to verify how true that really is, because it's very common. It's a very common infection, so... 
maybe causes it's more, mono. So yeah. a lot of people have mono, so, but not a lot of people have, have lupus. lupus. So it's hard to say that. Okay. So for a lot of the autoimmune disease, there's a thinking that there is something in the DNA. Can't do a thing about that. But there is some exposure, some trigger that happens that allowed this disease now to have significance. For example, an infection, an exposure, trauma. But it's not very well known. We don't have an answer to that yet. But for people that do have a, a known rheumatic condition, um, things that can trigger a flare, make their disease that was once quiet now having manifestations. So stress is a huge one. And it's a lot easier to say, oh, stop being stressed. Oh, right. Because <laughs> if we had that answer, we'd be gazillionaires. And I'd be and, out of a job. <laughs> right. Well, we wouldn't need to have a job because we'd be gazillionaires. So if anybody out there can cure stress, you let us know. But okay, so but it's really easy to say stress and it's yet it's really hard to figure out ways to reduce that right and it may even mean that you don't hold a regular job or you know you really have to handle your life exactly. differently because this is such a huge factor so what are some of the other triggers if you have lupus already and we don't 100 percent know why you get it but kevin's question was great if you have it what are the triggers? And I always think to myself, you know, if you have a family member who has lupus and you get yourself a cold or a cough or bronchitis or pneumonia, mm -hmm. stay away from them mm -hmm. because they already have an immune system problem. Don't give them your infection. So one thing anybody in a household could do is try and keep that person from getting exposed to whatever their illness is. What other things can set off a lupus flare for somebody who's already diagnosed? Stress, okay. Infection. Infection, Absolutely. Keep your germs to yourself, everybody. Yes. And so when someone has a bad infection, they can look like they're having a flare of their lupus, but actually it may not be, and it may just be the infection. But we do know any stress on the body, whether it is emotional stress, physical stress, infection, uh, a fracture, surgery is a huge one. Um, all of these things can potentially... Um, shock the body and then the immune system gets a little carried away and then it means lupus flare. It just can't stop itself. It can't stop itself. And then you have to stop it with medication, sometimes the prednisone, sometimes some other medicines. Yes. Okay. So for the acute flare, if someone's you know, having a rough time of it, especially if someone we know in the past had severe organ manifestations. Those organs are more likely to become attacked again in the setting of a flare. And we don't want to meet that version of the person again. And so the only thing that we have really is steroids. So oftentimes when someone is starting to flare, we just get those steroids on board. But there should always be a plan in terms of, yes, this is the dose we're using. Yes, it's high. But the plan is this is how we're going to get it off or to a much lower dose that we're all a little bit more um, okay with, for lack of a better word. But to leave someone on high doses of prednisone for a long period of time, there are lots of potential complications and side effects from the high doses of prednisone. Absolutely. You know, osteoporosis and cataracts and all sorts of things, infection and diabetes and all sorts of complications from prednisone. It's like that double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. It's good, but boy, it's bad mm -hmm. all at the same time. Okay. Well, thanks, Kevin. That was such an excellent question, and I appreciate you calling in. We've got another caller on the line. We have Cynthia from Maui. Cynthia, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling us. What can we do for you today? Well, I have a, um, what's uh, challenging to a lot of my doctors. I have a rare autoimmune disease called relapsing polychondritis. Oh, I feel sorry for I you. I feel sorry for you. <laughs> I'm you know so what? sorry. I try not to, um, you know, stay in that neg negative, and I, I, I do. Um, but that's such a challenge. I, I, do lead a, uh, I try to lead a positive life. Excellent. That's the best and, um, medicine. So I was diagnosed uh, 2000 in July, July 2000, and I was uh, 34 years old, just married seven months, and then 
it started off with the uh, the uh, the red ears bilateral, and so I was lucky because I didn't have to wait very long to get the diagnosis. So um, within months, I was put on prednisone, that dreaded, but um, we were just wonderful talking about drug. It. Yep, you got it. And um, and so the you know since 2000, I've not been able to get off prednisone. So for you know 14 and a half years, I've I've uh, the lowest I've ever come to was maybe 12 milligrams, but I'm at I'm at a maintenance dose of 15. And yes, I have diabetes. I have, um, oh, what else? Whatever. Cataracts, <laughs> weight gain, all sorts of different troubles with osteoporosis. Yeah, and, um, okay. The moodiness, I've kind of got it under control because I can, I can sort of stop myself and say, where is this coming from? Is it the drug or is it the, the actual situation? And most of the time it's just the actual situation. And I can sort of diffuse myself from, from it going you know, ballistic. Mm-hmm. So I've, um, so that's, that's okay. But, um, and I, I have managed not to have the, the moon face, which is kind of unusual, but, um, well, Cynthia, it sounds like you've done a fantastic job at I trying have. to manage and, your um, illness. My yeah. issue, well, my, like within two years, I, I had the tracheal stenosis. Mm-hmm. So the narrowing of the trachea. Mm-hmm. So, um, I lived with it for about a couple of years until my doctor just told me I had to have a tracheostomy. So I have one now. I've had it for 10 years. And it's been a lifesaver. Literally um, a lifesaver, yeah. As well as a literal pain in the neck. <laughs> That's true, been, yeah. You know, like I said, I, I look towards the positive and everything's been in good with the, the tracheostomy. But um, my issue has been that... Um, you know, trying to find the right cocktail to the, you know, to where I could find something that's um, that could lower my dosage or t- take me off of prednisone, mm-hmm. and haven't found it. And I come up negative with um, for like RA factor or even like just last month I took the RA factor t- um, lab work and also the uh, I have it right in front of me the anti CCP antibody. So you've done a lot of these advanced tests that yeah, for a lot of internists, yeah. Once in a while, because my rheumatologist in Honolulu, she, um, you know, tries to see if, if I can use some other drugs that are out now that that could be powerful enough to get me off prednisone. But because of these tests, I can't, um, I can't get off the prednisone and go on like Humira or something like that unless I go off label and I can't afford that. Well, and that sounds like a really difficult dilemma, Cynthia. It sounds like it is. So yeah, it's because an ongoing thing and right. yeah, sure I have my dark moments put myself in, you know, paint myself into that corner, but I I try to get out. But I mean, do you know any I mean, you don't know me and my history, but I mean, are there uh, I guess the question you're asking are, are there is, treatments? Sure, are there to get new you treatments the down the horizon. Exactly. So, um, I don't know what you've tried, and 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 I agree. I I 
only know you over the phone and you have a f- at least a 14 or 15 year history of having to deal with this, you know, relapsing chondritis, which is a, it's a terrible disease. Um, but there are a lot of medications that you can use for relapsing polychondritis. And this particular condition is often what we call seronegative, meaning that if you test all the antibodies, they're going to come back negative. Some people may have a positive antibody called an ANCA, but you do not need to have this um, antibody. Usually relapsing polychondritis is a diagnosis that's made clinically based on how you look. You had the ear involvement and you had the tracheal stenosis. Those are slam dunk diag- um, features to sort of solidify this diagnosis. Prednisone's a good drug. Um, in my opinion, 15 milligrams a day is a little high, and, I would, and I'm with you in trying to get that to a lower dose. And so sometimes when we use some of our other oral medications, we're not using it specifically for the underlying disease, but for you, I would say it would be for your underlying disease. But we call it a steroid sparing medication that we're giving it to you to get you off of the prednisone, because clearly the prednisone is doing something, and it's doing good for you, but it's also doing bad, and you've listed a lot of the unfortunate side effects that someone could possibly experience. Um, So some of the oral medications that at least I have used for relapsing polychondritis, either to control the disease itself or to get someone off of steroids, one is called methotrexate. Um, Another one is called azathioprine. And sometimes I've even used one called Arava. So there are lots of options in terms of even oral medications, not even having to go to the injectables. And I think an oral medication probably would be better than an injectable. Some of Uh, The type of inflammation you have is called a vasculitis, and lots of the studies with the injectable things like Enbrel and Humira have not shown fantastic results with the injectables. They've actually shown better results with the pills. So that's that's certainly something Cynthia can look at. I mean, she has this serious condition, which fits into the world of rheumatology. She mentions that she has one. And with this condition, it often requires that people have some fairly strong medication given, and, you know, Cynthia, I, I, I'm, I feel for you, and I also congratulate you, because you were diagnosed 14 years ago, and you have managed with this for basically almost a third of your life, and that's amazing. And to your credit, you've kept this positive attitude, and, and you've really been able to direct a lot of your care. So it sounds like, you know, unfortunately, some of the new medicines you hear about on TV, the Humira, the Enbrel, they might not be as good for your condition, but I hope that you're able to work with your doctor to find some options. And I'll be honest, if you've had it for 14 years, you probably tried some of those. But uh, I wish you luck getting off of our double-edged sword prednisone, because that's certainly something that can really help, but can also sometimes hurt as well. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Tracy Carano. She's a rheumatologist at Straub Clinic and Hospital. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about rheumatoid arthritis, one of the other common autoimmune conditions that occurs treated in the world of rheumatology. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those TV ads for the Humira, the Embrel. What are these medicines and what are they for and how do they work? You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. For a new era in medical coverage, we consider an integrative approach to health that cares for the whole person and includes gentle natural techniques, not just high-tech medicine. And we learn how some aspects of integrative health will be supported by provisions of the Affordable Care Act. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for The Search for Wellbeing, a special documentary from humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. 
On December 13th, Ho'omana Namele, a collection of young Hawaiian musician composers, bring their talents to HBR's Atherton Studio. Ian O'Sullivan, Blaina Singh, and Duncan Kamakana Osorio first perform original music from each of their upcoming CDs, then come together for a unique collaboration. That's Saturday the 13th at 7.30 p.m. Reservations at hprtickets.org or by calling 955-8821 during business hours. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Tracy Carano from Straub Clinic and Hospital. And we're talking a little bit about autoimmune disorders. Now, nothing replaces a visit to your own primary care provider, but we are talking about some conditions that are generally very serious and can affect either yourself or someone you love. Now, right before the break, we were talking with poor Cynthia from Maui who has this other condition, relapsing polychondritis, a little less common than rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, but certainly definitely is potentially destructive. And kudos to Cynthia for handling it so well for the last 14 years. There's another condition I want to take some time to talk about, which a lot of people don't completely understand. Arthritis is a term that means wear and tear of the joints. And, you know, it's almost it's almost inevitable that people, as they get into their later ages, 70s, 80s, and 90s, we've got some wear and tear on the body, so you may have some arthritis. But there's a very particular kind of arthritis called rheumatoid arthritis that is of and by itself a specific category. It's not just wear and tear arthritis. And it's somewhat similar to lupus in the sense that the immune system is sort of the culprit here. Same kind of pattern as far as who gets it more often, but it's a bit different. Tell me a little bit about the classic description of rheumatoid arthritis. So rheumatoid arthritis, if we're globally making a very stereotypic presentation of someone that we would read in a textbook, it's usually symmetric, meaning both sides of the body. So a joint on one side of the body, then the joint on the other side of the body will be affected as well. It tends to like small joints of the hand. So wrist and the small joints of the finger, um, the knuckle joints, as I guess what people would call them, the knuckle joints. But not like your tiny not little Not the joints. tiny ones at the very, very end. Um, and That's a the, key part. Yes. Because a lot of people have, we call I call them the little, they're the DIP joints, the distal interphalangeal joint, but I just called the dip. If you're going to put your hands in dip, that's just that little tiny little joint that's going to get in there. So if it's there, you're not talking RA. No, it, it can. Um, but globally speaking, if someone only had the DIP joints, the ones at the very, very end, that would probably not, not be, be rheumatoid arthritis. And the toes, the joints of the toes are also very commonly affected. But rheumatoid arthritis can affect larger joints like the knees, the elbows, the shoulders, the neck, the hips. It can really affect anything. Um, But if someone were to walk through the door with wrists that were swollen and the small joints of the fingers that were swollen, that would fit more along the line of sort of quote-unquote classic rheumatoid arthritis. So who gets it? Is it the same kind of deal? More women than men, women in childbearing ages. Is that the general group or is it somebody a little older? Uh, We see it in basically all ages. When it develops in pediatric population in like the infants to the 16-year-old, we call that juvenile arthritis. Um, That would be evaluated initially by the pediatric rheumatologist, but that's still in the family of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, But basically, we can see rheumatoid rheumatoid arthritis at really any age. So Kind of equal, men and women. Men and women equal. Pretty equal. And at any age, significant joint destruction? It can cause significant joint destruction, particularly if someone were to have aggressive disease that was not treated. 
Um, and people have probably seen pictures if they went on the internet with uh, people that have just joints that are just very um, malformed and pointing in directions that they shouldn't be. Um, in this day and age, with the medications we have, we would hope to not see that and to prevent someone from ever getting that severe. So we have the same situation. If you get diagnosed, treat early, don't wait. Mm-hmm. And some of the medications we hear about on TV that, you know, one of our callers, Cynthia, mentioned, the Humira, the Enbrel, mm-hmm. they actually are newer medicines that have come out in the last few years, and they actually can really significantly modify the course of this disease. So there, there's this DMARDS is the mm-hmm. term that they use, disease-modifying agents. And so these are new medicines. Are they safe? Uh, yes, uh, they are safe, but that's not to say that there's no risk. There's nothing in medicine that's risk-free. Um, if they are properly used, if they are monitored by someone who's familiar with how to administer and follow the medication, they are safe. But there are precautions that need to be undertaken because these medications suppress the immune system. And we're trying to suppress the immune system because the individual person's immune system is overactive and is targeting the joints in the, in the situation of rheumatoid arthritis. And so when the immune system does need to activate it, for example, trying to fight an infection, if you're on these medications, your immune system may not be able to do what it needs to do. And then now a little infection may become something that's a little more serious. And so that that is one of the biggest concerns with any of the injectable agents is the risk of infection and not just common infections, but we call them atypical infections, infections that we typically don't see in the normal average person walking on the street, things that we would see in someone who is, um, for example, on treatment for cancer, someone whose immune system is suppressed, which is what we're doing in uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So basically, you know, TB would be a concern. Yes. So we should, uh, someone should be screened for TB either with the skin test, that tuberculin skin test, or with a blood test, looking for any evidence of tuberculosis in the body. And any other type of weird fungal infections, if you traveled like to the Southwest, there are certain conditions that are more common. Yes. So you've really got to be the right person to take these medicines and then be monitored pretty carefully. And another one we screen for or should be screened for is hepatitis B and C. Should be screened for before getting on these medications. Absolutely, because you don't want to activate hepatitis. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, well, you never want to activate hepatitis, but more so when you're on a medication that suppresses the immune's ability to respond to that. Now, we had a shy caller who had an interesting question, and I have no idea about this one. And he said, you know, hookworm infections suppress your immune system. So I guess could you, like, infect people with hookworm? I don't think we're doing that, but it's an interesting comment about how else could we suppress the immune system. And I haven't heard enough about hookworm to be able to answer that, but I don't know. That would be a fairly interesting treatment. Yeah, you haven't heard about it either. Okay. (laughs) Well, to the shy caller, you have stumped both of us. What an interesting question. Speaking of callers, we have Don on the phone from Eva Beach. Don, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. How are you? All right. And you guys? Doing well. It's Monday, though. Good. (laughs) I look forward to listening to you every Monday. It's a really great show, and, and it kind of helps us. But what I was thinking was, with with the arthritis now, the, the rheumatoid, and um, not as far as um, nursing the joints or anything, but as for the pain and also with the different immune systems, um, you know, diseases that you guys were talking about earlier, um, how effective do you guys think medical marijuana would be with it? It's a great question, Don, you know, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of information out there about how marijuana treats pain of other sorts of illnesses. And, and, you know, I think the country's coming around to realizing that 
marijuana, although it's in some areas considered illegal, from the medical perspective, there may actually be a big role for that. Dr. Carano, you're kind of shaking your head like, yeah, you know, if you've got a lot of pain and joint destruction, this may actually be something to help. I mean, we do know that it's used in cancer. Cancer has a lot of, you know, nasty side effects from the cancer itself, but I think more from the treatment, treatment, radiation, chemotherapy, people get really sick from that. And for some individual patients, that's really what gets them through. We do know from studies that marijuana modifies the pain pathway. I just think there's a lot of stigma with marijuana. Not very many doctors prescribe it. I would say most doctors probably do not. And so there's that uh, there's that, that roadblock there, but I think that it can be effective for some people. I don't prescribe it myself, um, but people will tell you that it does help their pain. Well, and the hard part about it, Don, is that, you know, at this point, although medical marijuana has been legislated to be legal in the state of Hawaii, there is no place to get it. You either have to grow it yourself um, or that's it. Maybe find someone to grow it for you. And so I think currently uh, January 1st is a big upcoming date for those people who use medical marijuana. And it's now going to be monitored by the Department of Health instead of the Department of Safety. And some of those changes are going to require that primary care doctors be the one to prescribe medical marijuana. And I'll be honest, and I hope somebody from the DOH is listening, I have no idea exactly what the criteria are because it has not been brought to the attention of any primary care docs that would have to be considering this. So there's there's definitely a lot of lack of information, I would say. Plus, also, we really don't have a good handle on any type of dispensing. And so, you know, I can tell somebody, hey, go get yourself some medical marijuana. And then if they get caught buying it on the street, that would still be considered an illegal transaction. So until we sort through some of the details, I think we're probably not yet at the point where that's going to become commonplace. And and again, this is medical marijuana, not necessarily recreational. Um, But I think we have some room to go to further address this issue in the state, and hopefully we'll do so soon. And for those people who have blue cards, you've heard about this January 1 deadline. And if you haven't, head to the Department of Health website, because there's a lot of information that hopefully they'll be a bit more encouraging as far as sharing that with the doctors, let alone the public. Okay. So that's my little spiel on medical marijuana. Dr. Carano, you're like stuck to hear me say all this. Um, but but certainly important for those people for whom it is one of their only options. Okay, we've got another caller on the line. We've got Jeremy being so patient from Maui. Thanks for uh, calling us today and hanging on the line. Now, if you turn off the radio, we'll hear you better, and we won't hear two of me. So, Jeremy, what can we do for you today? We can hear you. Okay, awesome. Um, I also have a question about an alternative um, to the lupus. I have a couple clients, and I have a business locally here on Maui that I distribute raw coconut water, and that seems, I don't want to say it works, but it seems to have some uh, positive effects to it. And I was wondering if you folks have encountered any of that. Interesting. Raw yeah. coconut water, Dr. Carano. I don't think I've had any patients on raw coconut water. If they are, they haven't uh, told told me that they were on it. Um, but we do know that there are so many other forms, like spices and foods, medicinal plants, I mean, that's used in other cultures and for centuries that have fixed various ailments um, in the realm of even inflammation. So there is, there's truth in, in these things. And there's a lot of research going on in terms of finding other alternative ways to control inflammation. Well, you know, Jeremy, there's something really interesting about coconut water. And I, I read this somewhere and it just stuck with me. 
And basically our plasma, which is part of the blood that has electrolytes and stuff, has a concentration of certain things, sodium, potassium, etc. And if you were stuck in a deserted island, which I hope you never are, and you were severely dehydrated, you could actually infuse coconut water. Now, granted, we're talking about sterile conditions, etc. Um, and it would be the equivalent in your plasma. So the, the, the current rage about drinking coconut water, whether it be raw coconut water for this particular autoimmune situation or just in general, it's actually probably like nature's best Gatorade that is safest for your body and, and natural and healthy. So, you know, you brought up a good point, Dr. Carano. There are some alternative spices and other sorts of herbal treatments that could be anti-inflammatory and help the immune system. Is there anything out there that strikes you as as unusual when we talk about alternative? I mean, have you heard of something that would be potentially dangerous? Um, coming from a a Western medicine standpoint, uh, I do acknowledge the importance of like Eastern and complementary medicines. But for our diseases, I like that to be complementary as opposed to instead of. instead of okay. um, because while these alternative treatments are great. Um, we do know that our medications do modify other aspects of the immune system, and without it, the fear is that there could be, you know, progression and continuation of the disease. So I think things work well together, and it does. My own bias, I get nervous when someone wants to abandon the uh, Western approach and go strictly with um, with various alternative regimens because. I think every doctor has seen their fair share. At least everyone has had to have had one patient that went that route, and it just ended very badly. So instead of either or, you like the and idea. And idea. Let's uh, work together, do it together, modify things together, and and not just choose either or. Right. The one thing I do caution uh, my patients against is taking herb supplements or whatnot that are trying to boost the immune system because Boosting their immune system could mean triggering a flare because their immune system is overactive. And so I would say to stay away from herbs and supplements that are trying to boost their immune system. Sure, sure. If your immune system is already hyper, don't make it worse. Exactly. Okay, understood. Really good point. And I like the fact that, you know, the it's not either or, it's and inclusive. Okay. We've got another caller on the line. We've got Caroline on the line from Mililani. Caroline, welcome to The Body Show. Oh, thank you very much for taking my call. <laughs> Thanks for calling us. Um, my question is, um, the summer before last, I got a very uh, persistent bladder infection that wouldn't go away, and I went back and forth to the urologist and the gynecologist about 10 times, no exaggeration, and uh, they couldn't figure out what it was, and they um, put me on a whole slew of different antibiotics without ever really doing a proper um, test, you know, sending it out to the mainland to find out what the bacteria was. And um, as a result, I think, well, I don't know if it's as a result, but I developed a condition called lichen sclerosis on my clitoris of all places. How horrible. And it's extremely painful. And um, they didn't diagnose that right either. I was finally diagnosed by a doctor on the mainland uh, who put me on clobetazol. Yes, clobetazol, yes. Um, but it's a steroid. And... You know, he the, the alarming thing was he told me that I'm going to have to live with this. There's no cure for it and that it's an autoimmune condition, and I didn't really understand what that meant. I didn't know whether it was the result of uh, being bombarded by antibiotics for the better part of a year and my body rebelling and reacting 
and I don't know what to do about it now, and it's interfered with my whole life, you can imagine, with my, my poor husband. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, nearly impossible to do anything together because, you know, it hurts to walk, it hurts to have sex. I mean, it's just destroyed my life. Oh, Carolyn, that just sounds horrible. And lichen sclerosis is one of those conditions that I'm going to defer to Dr. Carano because I think I can spell it. <laughs> but I I echo the doctors who saw you having a hard time diagnosing it because I can't guarantee that I would be able to come to that conclusion independently seeing somebody with conditions related to infection. And I don't think the antibiotics caused it um, because, you know... Antibiotics help your body to get over an infection, but they don't really suppress or activate your immune system. And that's all I'm going to say, because lichen sclerosis is one of those mystery diagnoses that, that I am so happy we have people like Dr. Carano and dermatologists to help figure out, because it's, it's, above, it's above my head, I'll tell you. And in all honesty, I don't really manage lichen sclerosis all that often. It's usually um, dermatology or even gynecology. Um, sometimes if they're trying to get you on a medicine above and beyond the topical steroids, um, sometimes then you are seeing the rheumatologist because as a rheumatologist, we are very comfortable with some of the immunosuppressing drugs that you take systemically. And so we're helping to manage the medication itself. But the actual condition of lichen sclerosis I don't think I've actually ever personally diagnosed it uh, myself, mainly because most rheumatologists aren't assessing that part of the anatomy on a day-to-day basis. So it's usually gynecology or dermatology that's really running the show with that one. And there could be pills that could be used, like she mentioned, topical steroids. Yeah, You could try pill steroids, but then we have all those other side side effects. effects And and if the issue really is that part of the the skin or the mucous membrane, that's really being very directed towards that part and will limit the amount of systemic sort of exposure to the the steroids. Um, There are various different forms of steroids, so even beyond clobetasol. And so um, I don't know who's following you right now, but there might be a trial of a different formulation, a different strength of the steroid to see if you get any different benefit from that. So the good news is, Carolyn, that you have it diagnosed. And the second good news is that there could be some other sorts of steroid treatments topically. And beyond that, you don't have the side effects of systemic steroids like the pills we talked about because you're using it topically. So we, we've we've certainly covered a lot of ground, Dr. Carano, talking about lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. There's some other things that we could do a whole show on gout, and I know there's a lot of people out there who need to hear about gout, and that's something that I think we should have you come back and discuss sometime soon. For those people who have these conditions, what would be the best thing they could do to help themselves? I think for many of these um uh, these individuals, leading a healthy lifestyle is first and foremost. And when joints are involved and you hurt and you feel stiff and you can't get out of bed in the morning, it really makes it hard to do anything. Yeah, they have a real excuse not to exercise (laughs) as opposed to my fake excuse. Okay. Right. And then, you know, when people stop moving, stop using their body, then it just, it it creates this vicious cycle of, you know, deconditioning and hurting more, destabilizing joints more. And so, you know, really getting to the right physician, right specialist, because once you start getting into treatment for some of these conditions, most primary care doctors may want someone to see a rheumatologist and there's nothing wrong with that um, because it's familiarity with the medication and how to monitor it. So, I think seeing a rheumatologist, getting someone back to their baseline, because with some of our treatments, if we can get someone soon enough, we can get them back to where they were before they got sick. 
Fantastic. On that note, I want to thank you, Dr. Carano, for being on the show and sharing your expertise with us on The Body Show. And if anyone wants to contact Dr. Carano, she works at Strop Clinic, and you can find her at 522-4000 and call her office. If you'd like to hear this show again, click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Our engineer, David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show.